Gracious Father, again, we thank you for the privilege to come before you corporately as your people. And we come this morning to confess to you our, our great need for you moment by moment, step by step, in this walk as we uh, await our eternal home in glory where there is no presence of sin. And certainly as we walk in the power of Christ, we know that we are freed from the penalty uh, as we trod this world, but yet it is present. It is a struggle. And uh, we are prone to, um, to sin. We know that even our sins as your children are offense to you. For, um, for that reason, they break our fellowship, our intimacy with you, our Lord. And we come to confess them. We come to confess them before you. For we know uh, it is good and right for our souls. It is healthy for us. It is meaningful for our Christian walk. And it is good for our corporate um, bonding. For you to hear our hearts, our hearts hate our sin, we desire to know you, we desire to walk in righteousness, uh, and it is by your strength that we do so, it is through the power of your word and the spirit of God that indwells your people, enabling us to intake, uh, internalize your word, and to hear you and know from you, and to walk in obedience, would you continue to fill us and strengthen us uh, as we hope and long for you, and the desire to be your light and your witnesses here in this world. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we come to chapter three of the book, or excuse me, chapter 23 of the book of Acts, and we'll be looking at verses one through 11. Chapter 23, verses one through 11, and this morning's uh, sermon is titled Paul Before the Sanhedrin. So if you will, join me there uh, beginning in chapter three, and we'll read through the first 11 verses there to get the context of what's uh, taking place. This is Paul coming before the Sanhedrin. Now, if you remember, uh, in the very last verse of chapter 22, there Paul uh, was taken and by the, the uh, commander, by the Roman commander there, and uh, Lysias was a commander of a thousand. And now all this is transpiring in the Fort Antonio, right? So he's been taken there. And now uh, the commander is going to call the Sanhedrin together. And so now we're going to see that call for the Sanhedrin to be gathered at Fort Antonio. And then for Paul to be brought before them. Uh, for really the commander to kind of hash out what these charges are and what exactly is going on. Um, but in the meanwhile, we'll see that a little, a little ruckus, a little brouhaha breaks out between Paul and the high priest in Sanhedrin. So let's look there beginning in verse one, that being the, dra- the backdrop. Then they're all gathered here. So everybody is gathered really in the basement of the fourth. And then Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God to this day. The high priest Ananias said, uh, excuse me, commanded those standing uh, beside him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit and try to uh, uh, and try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But bystanders said, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee, and I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. As he said this, there occurred a, a, a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided, for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And there occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the, Pharisee, of the Pharisaic party stood up and began arguing uh, heatedly, saying, we find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. As a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. 
But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to me, uh, to my cause at, Ju- at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Now, so basically we have a, a ruckus on our hands here that is broken out, right? So Paul is now before the Sanhedrin. Again, just to kind of keep this in context, there are other, it's not as you would normally come before the Sanhedrin. There's, uh, there's protocol for that if the Sanhedrin is calling this together. And you're going to have the high priest with a particular garment sitting in a particular spot, and you're going to have a, the, 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 uh, the Sanhedrin is going to be encircling the witness or the one there to uh, testify before them. So this is not the case. They're kind of all gathered at the fort and it, it looks a bit in, in disarray in terms of there's no more, no formality here, but they're all gathered there. And again, Lysias has ordered this. And again, he, he's trying to find out why Paul is being charged. There's still not an understanding from the commander about the Jewish issue. What's Paul's crime? Now, the reason he needs to know is what? Do you know why he needs to know specifically? Maybe I'm here some, I'm here some uttering. So, so what's, what's he found out that's unique about Paul now? He's a Roman citizen, right? So Paul has to go to Felix, right? If he's a Roman citizen, and now he's going to be charged with a crime. Ultimately, he's going to have to go before Felix. So, he needs to, so, so now the commander needs to know what's going on in order to rightly bring Paul as a Roman citizen before Felix. So that's what he's trying to ascertain here. So this is kind of a impromptu preliminary hearing for him to gather some evidence and understand the charges. And it's just that, that very purpose. Um, the procurator of Felix must hear Paul's case, Paul being a Roman citizen. And I want you to see here just, um, just to try to kind of add to the context here a bit, the Sanhedrin here is really a picture and kind of a, a, a snapshot, a nutshell of Old Testament Israel at large. And that is that they have this glorious religion that's been given to them by God. And it's been given to them by God for the purpose of pointing to the promised Messiah. And Israel at large, but the Sanhedrin in particular, has taken this religion and they have internalized it. They have kept it to themselves, and thus they have diluted it and distorted it for themselves. Now, they can't harm it or dilute it in its, in its purpose, in its meaning, in its worth. But as they have a responsibility for it, they have internalized it. They have diluted it, and they have distorted it. And it's a healthy picture for us. This is one out of five times, you know, the last time the Sanhedrin will gather really to assess and, and, and pass judgment on the claims of Christ. That's really what's happening here. Paul is proclaiming Christ. And that's what's, uh, uh, that's what's put him on the hot seat with the Sanhedrin. This is the fifth time. The first was the trial of Jesus, and then in Acts 4, with Peter and John gathered, Sanhedrin also assessed that. Acts chapter 5, the 12, more witness before the Sanhedrin. Acts chapter 7, all that built up to Stephen, the Sanhedrin bore witness again to the claims of Christ. And here in Acts chapter 23 with Paul, and their behavior, their assessment is a self-condemning reality. They are blind guides. Five times as the leadership the high council of israel they have weighed in on the gospel message and found it wanting you're looking at blind guys but first i want you to see the encounter itself there in verses one through two so look there with me we're going to see the encounter so notice paul is looking intently at the council here and he says to them, because he knows them, there's a formal way to, to speak to the council. And he just bypasses that. He says, look, brethren, I have lived all my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Now, he's speaking of his 
Christian life now, since his point of conversion to this time. Now, certainly they know that he had great integrity as a Pharisee in terms of what he understood it meant to honor God in his twisted Pharisaical understanding at the time. But they know that he was zealous, right? Although his zeal is not truly pleasing and honoring to God, and his standing by and witnessing Paul, or excuse me, uh, Stephen being stoned to death is not pleasing and honoring to God. And his denying of Jesus as the Messiah is not pleasing and honoring to God, but as a Pharisee, a follower of the law, they knew that he was zealous. So they knew him. They knew how zealous he was as a Pharisee. And now he's saying to them, now as a Christian witness to you, I swear uh, that I have lived all my Christian life with a perfectly good conscience. And that says a lot, doesn't it? That is a mouthful right there. And, you know, we catch him. He's, he's, he's really staring at them. So it says he's looking intently at the council. So he's staring at them. We don't know how well Paul could see really at this point. Uh, and that may, be, we, well, that may be something that comes into um, addressing some of the issues later with understanding who the high priest was. I don't know. But we know that he's staring at them. He's looking them in the eye. And there's something to that, right? I mean, isn't when your kids, you know, when they, when they look away, they tell you something, but they're looking away as they're telling you. It's because they're guilty, right? Isn't it? I always tell my boys, look, you have to look me in the eye. Look me in the eye and tell me that again. Tell me what you're saying again. Look me in the eye and tell me what you're saying. And then, you know, the little ones do this. Right? They're guilty. But look at Paul. He's standing before this council and he is not. And he looks him right in the eye. And that's good. We as Christians need to look people right in the eye. And tell them the gospel truth. Paul is a great example here. So he's staring at them. And the high priest is going to speak up. You know, and, and I mean, Paul's had a dogfight all the way through, right? His Christian life has not been, there's, no, there's been no let up with Paul. I mean, it's just been one battle after another from the very beginning. Just one dogfight all the way through. And here he is, as far as Paul knows, this might be the end of the line. And he's staring them right in the eye. He doesn't back down an inch. And that's glorious. I love that about Paul. He just never backs down. He never takes a step back. Here's the truth. I love you. I care about you. I need to know the truth. There's no other truth. And I am intent on getting the truth to you. The Lord, my life is in the Lord's hands, come what may, but I'm getting the gospel truth to you. And he just never backs down in any situation, beaten from pillar to post. And here he is before the high council who know they know him. And he's staring in the eye saying, basically, you need the gospel. Never backs down. And that's something that we should uh, take note of and be encouraged by. You know how he does it? Now, again, this is not here in the text. So I'm just, I'm just saying this by looking at uh, kind of an overview of Paul's life in his Christian walk. But you know how he's able to do that? Paul always, all the way through, considers the majesty of Christ. When we see Paul reflecting, he's always reflecting on the majesty of Christ. And so when he hits these moments... These life-shattering, life-threatening moments. He's never, he never flinches because he's always considering the majesty of Christ. The worth of Christ will build your courage. Now, that's a little bonus. So that was for free today. That's not right here in the text. That was for free. You're considering the majesty of Christ will build your courage because this is also true. You're going to face difficulty in your Christian walk. That's just part of it. And God will give you courage. Consider Christ. The worth of Christ will give you courage. So he's staring them. And he's showing them the integrity. 
because he knows he's innocent. He can't stare at them. He can't look them straight in the eye because he's got nothing to worry about. He's innocent. And he knew God was with him. So he calls them brethren. And then he makes this, this powerful statement. You know, I have a clean conscience. That's a powerful witness. Oh, to have a clean conscience. That's basically saying, I've done all that I believe God has commanded me to do. That's something we want to strive for, to be able to stand at any point in time in our Christian walk and be able to testify by looking somebody right in the eye and say, you know, I have a clean conscience before God and man. And Paul can say that I've done all that I believe he has commanded me to do. And here again, we talked on this last, last time. Watch Paul put this over onto God. He's very good about this. Okay? And we must be as well. So Paul always comes and he says, look, here's the language. I've done what God has told me to do. And then Paul always comes back to God sent me to the Gentiles. This is God's call upon my life. This is what God has done in my life. So when we go out on the corner and we meet somebody and we say to them, you know what? God has told me that I need to tell you about Jesus. And they look at you like you're crazy because, and we back down from that because there's been so much of this charismatic wave about God speaking to them and telling them what shirt they need to wear and, uh, and, and where they need to um, invest their money and how they need to, uh, you know, uh, conjure up every get, get rich screen uh, uh, um, that, that we just immediately back away from this. But that's exactly what God has called us to do. That's exactly what we need to tell you. We need to just lay that up on God. Look, if you have a problem with me saying that God has called me to come tell you about the gospel, take that up with God. Because it's exactly what he's called me to do. You got a problem with that? You got a problem with me saying that God has told me that I need to tell you about the gospel. You take that up with God. That's exactly what God has told me to do. And Paul does it all the time. You have a problem with my ministry, Sanhedrin? God called me to the Gentiles. Did it a problem with me taking the gospel of our Messiah to the Gentiles? That's what God told me to do. So Paul's a great example there for us. That's a good application for us. Blame God. It's okay for you to do that. When somebody questions you and you're carrying the gospel and your life and how you live uh, uh, to, to strive to worship and honor God, and they have a problem with that, you say, well, just take it up with God. You take that one up with Jesus. I'm doing what I believe to the best of my ability that what God has called me to do. My conscience is clean. We want to be a people with clean conscience. Oh, what a prayer. Oh, what an application. Oh, what a testimony for our lives. Make them deal with God. Now, following your conscience is not always following the truth, right? So since Paul did say this, let's just touch on this a little bit and deal with this for a moment. That's not always following the truth, is it? Can your conscience betray you? Can a Christian's conscience betray him or her? Yes. Yes. So let's think about this for a moment and try to put this in the right uh, perspective here. So um, our conscience must be informed by God's word through the power of the indwelling spirit for the conscience to be rightly followed. That's the best way that I can put it. In other words, our conscience makes moral judgments on our actions, and our conscience will rightly follow God's word if we are, in, if our conscience is informed by God's word through the power of the indwelling spirit. Then we will respond rightly. We will hear our conscience because our conscience is always going to make judgments on our actions. That's what our conscience does. We all have a conscience. Every person has a conscience. We're born with it. As Christians, our conscience needs to be rightly informed for us to rightly follow it. So our conscience is going to make judgments on our actions. Now, as we follow those judgments, 
If we're rightly informed by the word of God and we're hearing from the indwelling spirit, take the word of God and rightly apply it to our actions and our situations, then we will respond appropriately and we will be able to say we have a good conscience. And we are living with a clean conscience. But we can't just assume as Christians that our conscience or just whatever ever we understand our conscience that it's just going to be, then that's obviously the right decision. Our conscience can betray us, can deceive us, can misinform us. So don't just assume, well, I'm a Christian and I know I have a conscience. Just whatever I think about any given situation, well, then that's right. Our conscience must be bathed with the Spirit of God. And then we must hear and pray for the indwelling spirit to rightly inform us concerning the word of God as it relates to any action or action or thought that we have and lay that and lay our conscience bare there before the word of God informed by the spirit of God. So again, our conscience is going to make moral judgments on our actions and we need to have our conscience bathed in the word of God and informed by the spirit of God that indwells us. First Timothy 1.19, keeping faith and good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. So this is an active thing that must be done. At least we shipwreck our faith. So a conscience will do this. It'll either clear or accuse us before God. And we need to be able to rightly assess that. So desire a clear conscience. A clear conscience acts in agreement with the Holy Spirit. That's what we're praying for, that our conscience will be lined up in agreement with the Holy Spirit as the Word of God informs us and the Spirit of God takes our conscience captive and gives us right judgment and assessment on our thoughts and our actions. And we too, like Paul, can say this, 2 Corinthians 1.12, this is Paul re- re- uh, speaking to the Corinthians, Corinthians concerning his and uh, the others, the other uh, uh, apostles' conscience. For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in the holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you. Now, that's what we want to be able to say in any given situation, in our workplace, in our family life, in our community life. That's what we want to be able to say. As we're ministers of the gospel, out of any context that God has given us, that's exactly what we may be able to say right there. We have a clean conscience. This is our testimony. This is our proud confidence. What are we confident in? That we have a clean conscience before you. Now, that speaks of the glory of God and salvation. But what about the high priest here? What about uh, the response to Paul making that kind of a statement? We'll look there in verse 2. So the high priest, Ananias here, and that's not Annas. Annas was the high priest when Christ was on the scene. So this guy is later. So now this is not, don't get those two confused. Those names sound similar. But this guy is um, not a good guy. He's a pretty shady character. Um, extortionist. Uh, has, has people murdered. Sets people up. Uh, wrongly accuses them. Uses his authority and his power uh, for monetary gain. And he's just kind of a nasty, surly kind of a guy with a real bad record. Um, very, very much pro-Rome. And the Jewish population really hated him by and large. Uh, kind of ruled with an iron fist, but but quite a guy that kind of knew the ropes uh, and uh, was able to swindle his way into riches. And he's, again, so guys using religion for political uh, and monetary gain is nothing. New. But uh, this guy was very good at it. Um, he was killed in 66, by the way, by a Jewish insurrection. Again, he's very much pro-Rome. And so there was an insurrection in 66 and he was murdered. But um, that's the guy we're looking at here. And um, <laughs> so he just basically there says, you know, you need to punch Paul in the mouth. Striking, striking is kind of a nice way to say it. He really, literally, he says punch him. 
So he just kind of yells out, look, for whoever was standing close to Paul there. Again, I believe they're kind of gathered, not any kind of formation, more just kind of all stuffed in the basement there. I mean, when we got, they've got this, the soldiers around them. There's, there's a number of people in there. There's 70 of them, right? So it's not a real formal uh, in terms of the, what they would usually, you'd usually see in someone coming before the Sanhedrin. So someone close to Paul, and so you hear the voice ring out, you know, punch him. Punch him in the mouth. Well, that's a nice how do you do for I have a clean conscience. Really? Punch him in the mouth. So Paul responds to that. And, and I'm going to say here, I don't believe this is righteous indignation from Paul. He might have just popped off a little bit here. So we might, we might see a little bit of Paul in the flesh. Uh, he's a, a great uh, testimony to us, a great encouragement. Uh, here we, we gain a wealth on the Christian life, and we just look at Paul and God's work and Paul and Paul's trust in the Lord and his commitment and his diligence uh, and his dogged determination to carry forth the gospel. But right here in this moment, we probably see Paul in the flesh. And so listen to what he says there in verse 3. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit and try me according to the law and in violation of the law? Order to strike, order me to be struck. Now, that's probably that. That probably, have you ever been there? That was probably blurted out a little bit. Mm-hmm. And you know, we're giving Paul lots of grace here, man. Who, who could stand in that situation? God must make us do that, right? God must give us grace. Same as we talked about David this morning. Uh, and God has given Paul much grace here. He's enabling him to, to, to stand in this. Um, this is just a furnace. You know, Paul is just constantly under pressure. But here he pops off a little bit. And so what he's saying there, he's pointing back here uh, to Ezekiel. There's a, there's a, he's pointing back to a verse in Ezekiel, and it, and it illustrates how often in that time they would, uh, there would be real shoddy construction. So there'd be walls and, and parts of homes and buildings built, and the construction was poor, and they were fragile and weak, um, but they would paint them over. They would whitewash the walls and they would seem well constructed from the look. But actually and internally in the structure, the structure itself was weak and fragile. And so he's making this comparison there as as an illustration. So he's saying you're weak and unstable and you're you're poorly constructed. Yet you appear on the outside to have it together. But really, you're lawbreakers. You see that he's saying you're a lawbreaker and you're trying to enforce the law. As so he reminds him, you know, here is, it was wrong. You're not to strike another Jew on the face. So here, out of just impulse and anger, the high priest lashes out and says, well, just, just hit him in the mouth. And Paul holds, holds him to the law and says, you know, you're in violation of the law right there. And now you're going to be an enforcer of the law. But again, I think he kind of did it with a little bit of a, a, a fleshy little there, you know, just kind of an outburst there. But he's basically saying you have some nerve. And by the way, is Paul found guilty at this point? No, he's not. So this is this is out of order, to say the least. The high priest is out of order. But notice what happens next there in verse four. But the bystanders, again, now they say back to Paul, do you revile God's high priest? So, wow, here comes this question out of the blue. And by the way, the office of high priest is set by who? Who determines that ultimately? That's God's structure, right? So the seat of rule belongs to God. Now, this is a matter of principle. It's also a matter of law. They literally cannot address the high priest in this, in this way. So the office is ordained by law. The office is ordained by God. And there's a law that speaks specifically to this. And Paul referred to that. But look at Paul here. He's not defensive. Listen to him respond in verse 5. He's not defensive. And again, we get to see the heart of Paul here, especially, too, because I believe he did kind of lash out in the flesh there. But this heart, and we have those moments. You know, Paul's not perfect. But look at his heart here. 
Verse 5, and Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that it was the high priest, for it is written, and now he's going to refer to the law that he's actually violated here. You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, Paul knows this guy's evil. But again, it's hardest to do things the right way. And so he doesn't get defensive. He doesn't, he doesn't say, well, look what you're doing to me. Look what he said should be done to me. Now, isn't that where we always go? Mm-hmm. I know I hate to always use my, my kids as illustrations here. But what do they say? When you call one down for doing something wrong, okay, you've, you've broken dad's law. And what's the response always? Is it ever about them actually dealing with breaking dad's law? No. But boy, he did the same thing yesterday. Right? Always. Paul doesn't do that. They have violated him right and left. And Paul addresses his integrity to the law, and he doesn't get defensive. He deals with himself before the law. He said, I didn't know it was a high priest. And he apologizes. How about that? They're ready to kill him. And he apologizes for violating the law unknowingly. How about that? Now, there's some integrity. You want to know why you have to clean conscience? Right there it is. Right there it is. And it's just a selfless heart. It's just a heart that's been nurtured by the word of God. And actually, the word of God is still spilling out from Paul as we speak. You know, this is he's one of the writers of the New Testament, bore along by the Holy Spirit as he's going through this. But the Old Testament, the truth of God's word has filled his heart. And the Holy Spirit enabling him to bear witness and, and bearing him along to be a writer. One of the writers of the news says all of this is fueling his heart as he deals with these life and death situations and as people abuse him wrongly. Isn't it the thing that drives us nuts that they mistreat us? Isn't that what really gets in our crawl? Isn't that isn't the thing that just really keeps us from getting out there with the gospel? Well, it's just mean to us. They say bad things. Mm. They don't listen. They're not, they're not polite to me. And that's not the point. We're not the point. It's the worth and majesty of Christ. And it's the worth and majesty of Christ that informs you and informs your heart as you go out with the gospel like Paul and you go into a hostile world and you face people that are going to be hostile toward the gospel and therefore maybe hostile towards you. And you're never defensive because the word of God has built you up. And Christ has been your anchor. And Christ encourages you and sees you through, just as he does Paul here. Even in those moments, when even when you might just pop off a little bit right there in the flesh. But look at Paul, draw this back in quickly. And he apologizes. He apologizes. Exodus 22, 28. You shall not curse God, nor curse a ruler of your people. And so he tells him, you know what? I'm sorry. Now, how did he not recognize the high priest? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. We're not given that in the text. Again, they're in the fort, so that makes the context different. He certainly couldn't see uh, the priest seated at his normal position. He certainly couldn't see the special garb that he would have. That would not be available to him. He probably doesn't have that on at all. It's a jumbled mess. And maybe, again, I, I would assume that he just heard a voice from the crowd. And I don't know how well Paul could see. I don't know how even seeing distance. We know probably couldn't see up close enough because he had a hard time studying. But I don't know if, if distance was a problem as well. Uh, you know, we're, we're guessing. It's guesswork. But he honestly in his heart didn't know it was a high priest. He was informed and he apologized. And that the guy's a scoundrel, the high priest is a scoundrel, just heightens the intensity of this. And the, and the, and the point of pursuing a clean conscience as we testify for the Lord. So let that just wash over you and encourage you here. What a testimony. He messed up and he apologized. How about that? So here we see the encounter. Or excuse me. We see the, the evasion here. So notice what Paul does. Paul's very slick here. I want you to see uh, how he works them to a position and really divides the Sanhedrin. And gets the issue right back to the point of the gospel. So notice verse 6 there. 
But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. He said this, uh, excuse me, as he said this, there occurred a division between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided. But the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So Paul's very clever here. So he knows these, but I mean, he knows them personally, but he knows, uh, uh, he knows how the Sanhedrin is, form, is, is formated. He knows their theology. So some of them are Pharisees and some of them are Sadducees. That's now, again, there's priests, there's elders, there's scribes. There's a number of different people in different roles that make up the Sanhedrin, but their overall theology is divided into basically uh, Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, the Pharisees, which Paul was one, are your very zealous, very conservative, very by the law kind of guys. And your Sadducees are a little more liberal leaning. They don't believe in the supernatural. All the Pharisees believe in the resurrection. They believe in angels. Sadducees, not so much. So they believe in a literal text. Sadducees, ah, not so much. Okay? So they're naturally divided. That's a pretty big gap theologically. And Paul seizes upon this. And he does so in a very clever and straightforward way because he is a Pharisee, is he not? And so he tells him, you know, I'm a Pharisee. I'm with this group. They all know him. They all know this is true. My dad was a Pharisee. You know everything about me. You know exactly what I believe. You know exactly where I stand theologically. You know exactly what I think about the law. I'm a Pharisee. And I'm on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. Now, he really put his foot on the gas there. Because that's a hot topic between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees do not believe in resurrection. The Pharisees do. And so he said, this is why I'm on trial. Because of the resurrection of the dead. Now, what's he, he doesn't say it here uh, in, in specifically, but what's he, what's he alluding to? What's he pointing to? Because he's already testified before them. What did he just testify? He's already been up on the stairs of the Fort San Antonio. And the whole crowd is right there. The Sanhedrin is right there. What's his testimony? The resurrected Christ met me on the Damascus Road. We had an encounter. The resurrected Christ spoke to me. This is what the resurrected Christ told me to do. This is what the resurrected Christ commanded of me. This is what the resurrected Christ has done in my life. This is why I'm here telling you about the resurrected Christ, who is your promised Messiah. Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. He's the resurrected one. I met him personally. He has commanded me to come here and to witness to him. Now, if that's true, what has the Sanhedrin done? prior they've crucified their messiah have they not they've crucified the promised one so he brings them right to the point of the issue we're dealing with the resurrected christ that's why i'm here that's why i'm on trial because you are trying to bury the reality of the resurrected christ but i met him i met him and i'm here to tell you about him he's your only hope and you've got to let go of this trying of this massive cover-up. Cover-ups are nothing to you either, right? You gotta let go of the cover-up and you need to repent. He's the promised Messiah. So the Pharisees like this a little bit. They don't like where it's ultimately going, but they really don't like the fact that the Sadducees do not believe in resurrection. So now they got somebody there that's at least testifying to the reality of resurrection. And there's an uproar there in verse nine. Some of the scribes of the Pharisees of the Pharisaic party stood up and began arguing heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Now listen to this. Suppose a spirit or an angel had spoken to him. 
We believe in spirits. We believe in angels. We find nothing wrong with it. Look, he's back in the resurrection. You can't, you can't charge this man for believing in the resurrection. We believe in the resurrection. It's one of us. It's one of our guys. A spirit could have spoken. Y'all don't believe in spirits. Y'all don't believe in angels. We do. An angel could have spoken to him. Maybe an angel spoke to him. Maybe a spirit spoke to him. What did he say? Who did he say spoke to him? The resurrected Christ spoke to him. Well, you know, we it, I mean, there's like two politicians, groups of politicians here. Does it not? We like this part about him. So we'll form it and shape it and mold it. We'll put a little fake news on it here. You know, so maybe it's a spirit or an angel. Then we can have our way. Christ told, or, or, uh, Paul told them it was the Christ. So leave that part out. But we're ready to, now we're divided and we're ready to, we're going to, you know, we're going to win the Sanhedrin here. And so as a great division was developing, the commander was afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces. So apparently this thing has gotten hostile. And now you can imagine, here's Paul. And like, you know, you, now you've got, you've got the sides. You've got the Pharisees, you've got the Sadducees, and they're just pulling at Paul, one to the other. Well, no, this is, I mean, look, this, this is, you know, this is possible. An angel could have spoken to him. He's speaking about the, we're on the, the resurrection at stake here. You know, the Sadducees, no, this is impossible. We can't have this foolish uh, nonsense, this hocus pocus, uh, um, supernatural stuff. But they're ripping at Paul. And so Lysias has to break in. Before Paul is literally there, the text tells us, torn to pieces by them. He orders the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and to bring him back into the barracks. So they start fighting over Paul, literally fighting over him. And as, as, they're, as they're fighting over him, literally pulling in him and ripping him to the, the, to the point of ripping him limb to limb. So they're attacking Paul as they're fighting over their ideologies. And Lysias must break in. So again, Second time, see the providence of God. Second time, God uses Rome, who are just, they're just looking for empire, just overlords, pagan overlords looking for empire, uses Rome to rescue his point man apostle to the Gentiles from the Jews. Now, that's some providence of God right there. Second time. So they pull him away, and they put him in the barracks. And that brings us to the encouragement there in verse 11. But on the night immediately following, so a night has passed, and Paul's alone in the barracks, locked up, a prisoner of Rome once again. No answers from the Sanhedrin, so he's waiting. And here we go. The Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my... Uh, to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Just rejected by his people. He's alone, sitting alone, locked up in the barracks. And surely it had to cross his mind, right? That's not a stretch, but surely he had to cross his mind. This is it. Man, I have been through a lot carrying this gospel. But this, this, surely this is it. Surely this is the end of the line. And then Christ comes to his side and basically says, cheer up. Isn't that great? Take courage. Cheer up. Now, I want you to see something here that we cannot miss in this text. Don't let this pass you by. If you're here as a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God indwells you. The Spirit of the living God indwells you. God is a God of comfort. Whatever your situation, you always can hear these words from your Lord. Take courage. Cheer up. My, 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 how many times do we get down in the doldrums? How many times are we frightened to death? Are we frightened to silence? Are we so discouraged? How many times are we alone? Oh, whoa, it's me. 
with whatever situation of life or our failures or uncertainty, our doubts, our struggles with sin. How many times and every time the Lord is right there with us. He indwells us. And every time there is that glorious reminder, encouragement, take heart, take courage, cheer up, cheer up. Second Corinthians 1, 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted. Now, there's one great spiritual truth. But every time that we have our struggles, the Lord of all comfort is there to comfort us. And it's not we're not just there uh, comforted and then left in a void. That comforting that we have is always promised to us from our Lord is a comfort but that, that then we take and take courage from and cheer up from and then use as our, as our Christian love and testimony to another brother and sister who might be going through something similar or another struggle. And we, those who have been encouraged and comforted, do likewise. As honoring and glorifying God with our life, as he's comforted us, we comfort one another and give glory to him. So here's a very clear, simple, and glorious application. Cheer up. God is always present with you. There's no circumstance, no difficulty, no issue of life, no matter of life that you will go through as a follower of Jesus Christ. But the Lord is not always with you, perpetually with you. And by the way, that is all you need. That is all you need. We have to hold on to that because we don't believe that. We don't believe that. Or we wouldn't back down at every turn. We don't believe that. But we must. I mean, we can only sit around and play with our little devices and hide in our little houses for so long. And say we believe this. That's exactly all we need. We can only be preoccupied with American lifestyle for so long. This is all we need. God is always present with us. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all comprehension, will guard your heart and minds in Christ Jesus. That's a truth from Scripture that overrides all circumstances and issues of your life. You can't get too busy or preoccupied to the point of not obeying and honoring God. He is present with you, giving you comfort and capacity to obey him and honor him and prioritize him in all your circumstances of life. So the promise is this. The promise is that Paul will, commit, will continue to give testimony of Christ. Now, I want you to see that. Because here's Paul at a low point. And it has to have crossed his mind. You know, I'm done here. I'm not going the wrong. If Paul's looking at this situation, it has to flash through his mind. Rome and Spain, are, that, was a, that was a pipe dream. This is where it all ends. And the Lord says to him, take courage, for, have, for you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem. So, therefore, you must witness at Rome also. So the promise for his faithfulness and witness is what? Oh, Caribbean cruise. I put you in a hot seat. You went to Jerusalem. It was a slugfest. It was a dog fight. You get a vacay. Isn't that what we want? I did a little time. Now I need to spend a little time on the other stuff. This Jesus thing, you know, I put a little, put a little effort in here, did a little stuff at the church, pay a little tithe, spend a little time there. Look at what Paul's reward is. And it's always this way. The reward for faithfulness and testifying of Christ is what? 
a bigger field. Now you're going to go to the city on seven hills. You're going wrong. I'm going to give you a bigger field to ministry. Your reward for faithfully ministering and carrying my gospel is the chance to go and continue to faithfully carry my gospel. That's a reward. That's his recompense. This is how scripture teaches us to think about this. Our obedience and our call. This is a reward of the Lord from Paul. He comes and meets with him directly. Again, this is five times. Five times the Lord meets with Paul like this, intimately. And this might be the most beautiful picture. Right here when he's just kind of like, maybe this is it. And the Lord comes and meets, to him, meets with him and encourages him, comes right alongside. Cheer up. Cheer up. I'm going to give you a greater opportunity to minister. I'm going to give you a greater field to carry the gospel. Just when Paul's thinking Rome is never going to happen, the Lord comes to him personally and says, it's going to happen. You were faithful. You were faithful in Jerusalem. Now I'm going to give you Rome. So a central part of Christ's work is to raise up witnesses for himself. We have to understand that. It's central to who we are as followers of Christ. He doesn't raise, he raises us up and he uses our gifts. He gifts us and he uses our gift in a multiplicity of ways. And there's support and there's prayer and there's monetary giving and there's serving. There's a multitude of ways that we can give to the cause and add work to the cause. But he is in the business of raising up witnesses, verbal witnesses for his namesake. And nothing about that escapes any of us. It's part of what he has called us to. So we're to be cheered by knowing such truth. Cheered by knowing that there's more work to be done. That's what, that's what he comes and says, cheer up. Cheer up. Caribbean cruise, I got the tickets. No, cheer up. There's more work to be done for you. This is why Paul is to cheer up, because he gets to do more gospel ministry. Can you see that in the text? The Lord says this. This is why you must cheer up. I'm giving you more gospel ministry. It's a promise to him. So, again, it's a central part of raising us up. A part of Christ's work is to raise us up to witness. He indwells us. We are full of joy and complete in him as his witnesses. Our joy and our completeness as Christ is never devoid of his being, of our being his witnesses. That's always connected. So remember we, we talked about Paul this morning, or excuse me, Saul this morning, and Saul lost his capacity, his courage, really. He lost his courage to go to battle. When he lost his courage, he couldn't go. He couldn't go because he didn't go. And the more he didn't go, the more he couldn't go. And Christ indwells us, and he dwells us as his witnesses. And as we sit on the gospel, it doesn't, it's never removed from us, but it's diluted and diminished within us because we sit on it and it rots a little bit within us. It's given to us for us to take it to others. When we internalize it, we minimize it. And the gospel is never meant to be minimized. And we learn from Paul here that very truth. Isaiah 43, 21. The people whom I form for myself will declare my praise. They will declare it. So part of possessing the Christian life is that you may bear witness of him. And Paul's reward here for his labor is more labor. And his heart is rightly overjoyed here. Possession of the gospel comes with the impulse to declare the sweetness of the Lord. Now that can be diluted. 
and the sweetness can fade. To speak your faith is to strengthen your faith. When the sweetness gets sweeter, it's when the faith is shared. When the joy and satisfaction and completeness of the Lord and Paul is heightened, it's when the field is broadened. His reward for faithfulness is more work, more labor for the glory of God. Then the greater intimacy, then the greater passion, then the strengthening of the faith. So our circumstances are for our being perfected in godliness and bearing witness to him. All of your circumstances, all of your life, everything that transpires, all that happens to you. Now, there may be more to that, but it's never less than for this purpose, for our being perfected in godliness and bearing witness to him. All that happens in our life, we know comes from the sovereign hand of God. And as it comes to the sovereign hand of God, to us as his children, it comes for this main driving purpose, not for us to have better jobs, not for us to have better homes, which there's nothing wrong with any of that. Please don't misunderstand me there. Not for us to be preoccupied with work, not for us to be preoccupied with uh, a political status or a political climate or, or, our, or our, our work position or our status in the community. It comes to us for our perfecting and godliness, being perfected in godliness to bear witness of him. That's the core purpose of why we're here, why we still exist on this terrestrial ball as followers of Christ. So a preoccupation with anything else, we've missed the mark. And the sweetness of Christ within us is being diluted. And our faith is not being strengthened. So Paul right here is really immortal. Nobody's going to kill him. Now he looks in a spot like he's in a spot where he's going to be killed. If we looked at the circumstance and anybody from the outside looked in was given the circumstance from a human perspective and said, oh, yeah, he's a goner. But the Lord came and spoke to him and said, you know, you've been faithful. I'm going to give you a greater field to witness. He's immortal until Christ is done with him. You're immortal until Christ is done with you. The same is true for us. God ordained and ordered the events of our lives. And he does so until our work as Christians are finished. And they're all come together for the purpose of you being built up and equipped and prepared to go forth as his witness. So faithful witnessing is a reward is rewarded by future witnessing. That's how it works. We really need to gather that. We need to get that. I mean, you know, for us, a little faithful witness here and there, then we got to have the big vacation. Man, that was tough. That was spiritually draining. Uh, I've got to get back to the, to the secular stuff. All through Scripture, this is just a magnified picture right here. All through Scripture, it's the same as true. Faithful witness is rewarded by further witness, future witness. <laughs> Recompense is the large context of Rome here. And so here's, here's a final application for you to take home. The doors are open, so to speak. I know it's maybe an overused term, uh, but the doors are open all around. Now, here's the question. Are we too lazy or too selfish to go in? Or if they appear close to us, are we too lazy or too selfish to kick them down? That's our question. All of our questions together as a church family, starting with me. And here's the prayer. May God give us grace to feel the spear on which he has placed us. Our place with his witness. Lord, may it be true. May you be encouraged by Paul. May we learn from Paul. May we be encouraged by our God who indwells us. Same God who indwells Paul. Same God who's called Paul. Same God who's called us. Maybe we be encouraged. Maybe we be immediate. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for this sobering uh, encouragement here, reminder here of your mercy, your grace, your gentleness, your compassion towards us, and your mighty call on our lives. That we, at least we be um, 
distracted to our detriment. At least we be um, deterred by our fears. At least we be um, disobedient in the weakness of our own self-justification. Cleanse us, change us, strengthen us that we may be your witnesses. Encourage us with Paul. Encourage us with one another. Encourage us with the reality that you are a God who never leaves our side. You perpetually encourage us and strengthen us and fill us with joy and fill us with completeness. But you do so that we might glorify you with our witness and all that we would not sit idly by. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.